Good morning, everybody. Um, I was telling Jordan, I, uh, this is a message that's been on my heart for, for some time now, so I'll, I'll try to keep it under an hour and a half. But uh, Riley said she had plenty of room right there to stretch out and lay down. But, uh, but this is a topic that's been on my heart. I don't have it down. Uh, there are no black belts in this thing. Um, but I would, before I get into that, I'd just like to say that my family is just really grateful to be a part of you and to be among you. And uh, we've just been very encouraged to be here among a church where uh, we're just going to get pure grain truth. You know, no matter what it says, Jordan's a slave to it. Alex is going to sing it. Our children are not getting a book of, you know, principles for life back in the children's group. They're getting pure grain truth. They're learning who the author is, what the author's intended meaning is, what the audience is. Uh, they're getting good stuff. And so we're just really grateful to be here among you. And I'm grateful to have this opportunity this morning to declare uh, God's word and share a few things that I believe God's been working into my heart for the past really several years. Uh, I still don't have it all down, but hopefully we can go on this journey together this morning. Hopefully we can all be encouraged and drawn closer to God this morning through his word. Uh, last time I was up here, uh, we preached on Revelation 5, and so we talked about the vertical relationship that we have with God. We talked about his holiness, the weightiness of Jesus Christ, King Jesus, uh, the lamb who was slain, the only one worthy to hold the scroll in his hand. Heavenly beings created before time even began could never hold that scroll. Uh, but today we're going to get into the more of the horizontal relationship uh, with God's creation. Uh, what is uh, Christian living? How are we to relate to God's creation? Uh, we all know that Jesus Christ is holy and he's set apart. But what did it look like when he walked the earth? What did his holiness look like? When he walked the earth, how did Jesus relate to the things that he himself had made? And we know he did not sin. We know what he did not do. We know that he could not participate in sin. We know that he does not author sin. But what did he do? How did he relate to it? How did he eat? How did he drink? What events did he attend? What events did he celebrate? And so we know that all of Scripture is God breathed and is used for teaching. It's useful for rebuking. It's useful for uh, training the man up in godliness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped uh, for every good work. And we know that God's word, it, all the letters are read, not just some of them. Amen? Every, le every letter in God's word, every letter in this book is God-inspired. That's what the scriptures teach us. So what, does the, what do the scriptures say to us about holy living, about Christian living? What are we to do with God's gifts that he gives us? How should we relate to what we have been given? Is there a wall of hostility that exists between the physical and the spiritual in this life? Is there a line between the secular and the sacred? How are we to relate to the created order? And these are some questions that I've been asking myself, and I believe God has been uh, working into me. And so we're in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, it's been read uh, if you have a copy of your Bible, we're going to go through this verse by verse, and then I'm going to have three points of application, no poem, I promise, but three points of application there in the end. Uh, if you'll look at verse 1 with me, uh, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, now the Spirit expressly says, pretty emphatic right here, right? There's the Spirit, he's not saying, I'm saying this, he is saying the Spirit that, create, that God created the universe out of nothing. He upholds it by the word of his power. The spirit that raises men and women from the dead. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ 
from the dead, he is saying that spirit, he is saying, and he's saying it how? Expressly. So probably need to listen to this. Probably pretty important that we understand exactly what he is saying in an emphatic way, expressly saying. What does he say? The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Depart. How are they going to depart from the faith? Here's how. By devotion. By devotion to what? They're going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what? Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So not so much a what. It's a what and a who, right? They're correlated. Devotion to the teachings of what? Out of what are these teachings coming from? They are coming out of demons. What do we learn there? We learn that demons teach. Demons are teachers. Demons have the ability to teach. They have doctrine. So in other words, what are they doing? They are devoting themselves to false doctrine. What is that doctrine also called? It could also be called demonic doctrine because it's coming out of the mouths, out of the hearts, the black hearts of demons. And what does it lead to? What is the end goal, the purpose of this demonic teaching? It produces departure from the faith. This is extreme stuff here. Okay? Demons teach. Demons have doctrine. Doctrine comes out of them. They are teachers. And this teaching leads to departure from the faith. And then in verse 2, who does this false doctrine come through? Who does this false doctrine come through? It says here, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He's not the, no sugarcoating going on here with the Apostle Paul. And he's actually saying the Spirit is saying this. So you could say the Holy Spirit is not sugarcoating anything. He is expressly, emphatically saying that this teaching is demonic and it is leading to people wandering away from the faith. And it's coming through liars whose consciences are seared. Verse 3. What is the false and demonic doctrine that is being taught here? Very important that we understand what this doctrine is. What is this false doctrine? And in verse 3 it tells us, they are forbidding marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created with a purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The demonic teaching is simply this. They are saying, marriage, you must abstain from it. Foods, you must abstain from it. Forbiddance, in other words, forbiddance and abstinence from things that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Marriage, foods, spirit, making a direct contrast between believing and knowing the truth and 
the teaching of demons. Teaching of demons, abstain from marriage, abstain from foods. Teaching of those who believe and receive the truth, receive marriage, receive foods with thanksgiving. Spirits making expressly clear, forbidding and requiring abstinence from created things that God gave as gifts is here in our text this morning, demonic. Not not just kind of an optional thing over here. This is something else entirely. This is a whole new religion. This is not like, okay, we're going to debate how often we have the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. This is not that. This is an entirely new religion, an entirely new set of doctrine. You abstain from this, that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Spirit expressly says, That is actually demonic. It is from the pit of hell. But notice also here, there is a positive purpose for these created things. And the purpose here of marriage and of foods, clearly said here, they are to be received with thanksgiving. Believers who know the truth receive marriage, receive foods with thankful and grateful hearts. And to say it in the negative way, those who have departed from the faith, unbelievers and demons do not receive marriage and foods with thanksgiving. There is no recognition of where the foods and where the marriage came from. There is no reception and participation in. There's no swimming in gratitude of these amazing gifts that God has given us. There is no activity in the things that God created to be good. They are removing those things. And Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is a demonic thing to do. So I think at this point is where I'm like, I'm scratching my head, I'm like, okay, does, does my standard, does my understanding of holy living, does my understanding of Christian living line up with God's standard and God's understanding of holy living? Now, we know, I shouldn't have to tell you because Jordan preaches this. We've been hearing, God is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. Isaiah encounters him. He is undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We know that God is holy. What we're talking about here is, what does that holiness look like in a horizontal way? How do do we live in this creation? Or are we creating something, a form of separation from the creation that God never intended? Are we inventing another type of holiness that God never intended us to invent? And I got to thinking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, their desire to be holy and to live holy lives, that was not their problem. Their problem was they created new laws that God never made. They they created things that God never intended and they attach those things to God's holy law. And in so doing, they created something else entirely. 
And, and why do they do it? In an effort to appear more holy. Right? But what they created, was it really holy? Was it really Christ-like? Was it really God-like? Or did they create something else entirely? So what we are learning from God this morning is that adding to God's law does not lead to holiness. It will never lead to holiness. What we are learning from Scripture this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1-6, through 6, and we're going to unpack several more here in a minute, is that adding to God's law does not only not lead to holiness, it actually does lead to demonic teaching and it causes departure from the faith. This is why Paul is saying the Spirit expressly says, and then here it comes. So we need to be very, very careful in our lives about how we live, not just in what we don't do, but in how we handle the things that we do do. Because there is a type of abstinence from our scripture this morning. There is a type of abstinence, a type of false holiness, a kind of separation from, a type of otherness that is here in our passage this morning, demonic. Serious business. So that's what Paul is addressing at Ephesus. But is it just going on at Ephesus? No. Let's look at Colossae. Colossians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read through this very quickly. Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 23. Paul writes this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. What is asceticism? It's the removal of things, a separation of things, in order to create a sense of holiness. Asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. For if... If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed, catch this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. How about Galatia? Galatians 5, verse 1. They're struggling with circumcision, adding things back into the gospel. Gospel plus something. I believe it was, a, I can't remember which pastor originally said it, but Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Right? So Galatians 5.1 says, Paul writes, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not return to a yoke of slavery. How about Rome? Romans 14.17. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How about Corinth? Pretty messed up in Corinth you're familiar with. 1 Corinthians 8.8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. In other words, it is not a matter of eating and drinking. Quit making it about those things. So this was clearly an issue in most of Paul's churches. The focus was on the wrong stuff. The focus is on what man has created rather than on Christ and his righteousness and his peace and his joy. So let's continue on in our passage in verse 4 today. He's continuing on with the Spirit expressly says, he says this, for everything. Now he's not just talking about food here now. He's not just talking about marriage here now. He's getting, he, he literally says, he says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected. Big qualifier here. If it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the Spirit's expanding on in verse 4 to include, he's going beyond foods, he's going beyond marriage. The Spirit is now saying everything created by God is good. Is that consistent with the Scriptures? Genesis is very clear, right? Light is good, darkness is good, planets are good, stars are good, plants are good, animals are good. Man and woman, very good, right? Nothing is to be rejected. It's all good. Abraham Kuyper, an old theologian, he says famously that there is not one square inch in all of creation over which God does not say mine. In other words, every square inch of this universe is God's. He made it, and therefore, it's good. Qualifier here in our text, expressly from the Holy Spirit, if it is received with thanksgiving and, verse 5, is made holy. How? By the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, you are a, quote, good servant, end quote, if you teach these things. So how are we to relate to the goodness of God's creation? And I think, based on our text here this morning, I think that we as the church here in Marion, Illinois, we should be a very receptive people, a very thankful people, a very knowledgeable people, God's Word, a very prayerful people. And I think you could roll all up together and say that's what holy living looks like. A holy man or a woman is a grateful, receptive, knowledgeable of God's Word, prayerful person. And the lifestyle will take care of itself out of that. So how do we make creation holy 
Three points of application, and then we'll sum it up. The first thing he says here in, in, in our passage is, we are to make the gifts that God gives us, the creation, we make it holy by the word, by the word of God. And so that needs to be the starting point, right? That needs to happen first. Why? Because we need a lens through which to see everything. And the lens through which we need to see everything is God's word, truth. So we must view creation through the lens of God's word. We need knowledge if we are to interact with this world properly. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God above. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as we look to the things not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Romans 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewal and renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is excellent, whatever is pure, think. Think about these things, right? So here's how this kind of played out. I, I, was, I had a, a, a brother and his family over to our house for dinner not too long ago, been a few months ago, I guess now, and he was kind of playing devil's advocate with me about all this because I was sharing him all this stuff that was, that was on my mind. And he's like, Russ, there are a lot of things in this world that aren't good. Right? And that's a fair point. It, so it can't mean everything, right? Cocaine is not good. Pornography is not good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so why do we need the word? Why do we make it holy by the word? Because that is how we are to interact with those questions and figure out, all right, what is good? So we don't have, I don't have the time to break all that down this morning so far, but I think we can make something holy according to this passage is by the word of God and prayer, which leads me to ask my friend, can you enjoy that pornography in the presence of Jesus Christ with him? And and the answer is no. Well, why is it no? Because Jesus Christ cannot participate in sin. He does not author sin. How do you know that it's sin? Because God's word clearly makes it clear that adultery is sin, that lust after a woman is sin. But does that mean that marital relations are bad? Of course not, right? So just because something is dangerous, whether it be fire or water or whatever it is, that does not necessarily mean that is, it's a bad thing. Pornography is not holy. Marital relations are holy. You make marital relations holy by the word of God and prayer. That relationship is very good. So the second way we do it is we make it holy with prayer. So I, I, we, I think we should view all of creation as communication from God to us in some way. I'm not making that up. John Calvin says that the creation, this universe, is God's theater. He's on center stage. Everything is his, like a fu- constant firework display. Miracles around us everywhere. It's God's stage. And we're just privileged to have a seat at it. Psalm 24, verse 1, he's not making it up. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Matthew 7.11, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is a judge. And you think about Job getting rebuked by God out of the whirlwind, right? Chapters of a rebuke that you don't want to be on the receiving end of a rebuke out of a whirlwind from God, right? What does God repeatedly point to to illustrate his character to Job? Created things over and over and over again. Why does God love marriage so much? It's a physical thing that illustrates something incredibly profound, namely, his relationship to us as a church at the journey. Marriage illustrates that. It's a physical thing that communicates a deep spiritual reality. And what then does this make the, the world? If this is all about a wedding feast that's coming between Jesus and the church, between Jesus and the journey, what then is this world if it's not like a cathedral that God is preparing to have a wedding supper in, right? Look at Revelation 19, verse 6. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The knowledge of the word, is our, it fuels, what does it fuel? It fuels prayerful worship within the creation that God our Father created us to enjoy and receive with thanksgiving. You can't have one without the other. We got to know who we're praying to. We got to know who we're relating to what we're relating to, the word fuels that prayerful worship and creates harmony with the creation that God made us and gave us to enjoy. Jesus repeatedly says, those who have ears, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. So God's word, to say it another way, is God's communication to you and God's creation is a way that God communicates to you Prayer is your reception of and your enjoyment of creation with God. So God communicates to you through his word. You communicate and participate with God in his creation. And then the third point is make it holy by living a life of contentment and enjoyment of creation. Ecclesiastes 6.3 says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that all the year, days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. In other words, a long life of discontentment and misery and joylessness, a life of like asceticism where you're just going to pull out and, man, I'm just going to kind of pull this up on my bootstraps and I can't really enjoy this. If I enjoy this too much, I'm not holy. I can't be content. I can't receive this with joy. This is more pathetic to Solomon and Ecclesiastes than a stillborn child. It's a self-inflicted misery that God never intends you to have. Rather, we are to receive 
with joy the theater that God has given us and to be content with everything that we have. It's all about this reception. Receive it with thanksgiving. Make it holy by the word of God and prayer. And we just had the Lord's Supper, right? Is it not a reception that we just participated in? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and receive me. Come and participate in this. It's a physical thing, is it not? Come and pick up this physical bread. This is my body. Come and pick up this cup. It's my blood that was poured out as a ransom for many. Poured out as a ransom for you. And participate in this. And receive this. You remember Cana? You remember Cana? You remember the mountain of the Lord in in Isaiah 25? There's a feast prepared for you. Participate in this. And the scriptures are saying that it's, I mean, I think it's satanic to depict God, our Father, as a miserly, discontent, forbitter. To describe him as a cosmic killjoy. The scriptures, I believe, are teaching us this morning is that's the teaching of demons. Just ask yourself this morning, to you on a personal level, is God a forbitter to you or is God a father to you? Is God your father or is God your forbidder? Do you pray? Does Jesus say, pray then like this, our forbidder who is in heaven, hallowed be your name? Or does he teach us to pray, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name? thy name. I think what we're seeing here this morning is we have not just been given a life of freedom from sin, which is true, absolutely true. Go and sin no more. Amen, 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 right? But that's not the end of it, is it? Go and sin no more. It's a separation from sin. You are free from sin, but it's also a freedom towards something, is it not? You've been set free from sin. You've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Come in. Come and receive this. Come and receive these gifts and enjoy them. I've been, a, I've been helped a great deal by uh, this book. It's called The Things of Earth. John Piper wrote the foreword of it. Uh, Joe Rigney is the author of it. If you can get your hands on this book, it has been extremely helpful for me. Um, uh, and here's a few quotes from it. One of a, he's actually quoting G.K. Chesterton that, that kind of wraps up what I'm trying to say. Probably, probably should just start with these quotes and, and uh, left. But G.K. Chesterton says this, You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink, end quote. And then C.S. Lewis says this, man, he's so good. Uh, Adding to this point we've been on here in point three, C.S. Lewis writes this, to shrink back from all that can be called nature into negative spirituality is as if we ran away from horses instead of learning to ride them. There is, in our present pilgrim condition, plenty of room, more room than most of us like, for abstinence and renunciation 
and mortifying our natural desires. But behind all asceticism, the thought should be, who will trust us with the true wealth if we cannot be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage. Not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback on them, confident and rejoicing those greater mounts, those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting at the king's stables. Not that the, the gallop would be of any value unless it were a gallop with the king, but how else, since he has retained his own charger, should we accompany him? That's a heck of a quote. And then one last quote right here, and he's talking about the song, uh, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I love the song, okay? But he makes a pretty good point about it here. L- listen to this. And what's more, direct communion, there's your prayer, by the word of God in prayer, we make it holy. What's more, direct communion with God increases our enjoyment of God's gift. What's more, direct communion with God increases our enjoyment of God's gifts and God's world. This is why I've always been puzzled by the lines of Lemuel's hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And here's the line. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now here's what he says about it. He's commenting about this. He says this. Now I'm sure that Mrs. Lemuel means the things of the world or sinful things grow dim in the light of Jesus' face. But that's not what she says. She says things of earth, which makes it sound like in the light of his face, my wife and my kids and my Chipotle burrito. I guess he likes Chipotle. I do too. My wife and my kids and my Chipotle burrito get dim and dull and dusty. And that's not my experience at all. In the light of his face, they get brighter. In the light of his face, they get brighter and better and more potent. A full look at Jesus makes his gifts come alive. She's more beautiful. They're more delightful. The burrito tastes better. Now I know what the gifts are for. So this is something that I'm still working through. And I don't have this all figured out, but I hope this has been of some encouragement to you. But I think it's safe to say that the physical and the spiritual are indeed married. They are not to be set apart from each other. There is no wall of hostility between the physical and the spiritual. They are not at odds. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. To sum all this up, I, I, I get the image of this dying very wealthy man, maybe a guy kind of like Solomon, okay? And he pulls his son to his bedside. He's on his deathbed, and he is slowly fading away. And just imagine being his son, being his daughter, and you come to visit him in his dying moments, and he hands you this envelope, and it's got the real fancy, you know, wax seal on it. It's been stamped on there with the, the family insignia. And he says, son, 
I've saved my entire life for this. I've worked hard my entire life for this with great joy and with great patience. I give this to you. Okay. And you take that envelope and you crack open the seal and you pull out. And what you have on the inside of that is his will and testament. Okay. And on the inside of that, and not so many words, and just the very same way that God told Noah when he walked off of the ark, I give you everything. Now, just imagine with me that you took that and you said, Father, I'm not, I don't feel like I can enjoy this. I don't feel content with this. I cannot receive this. I cannot enjoy this. Would that be honoring to that dying father? Would that be glorifying to him? Of course it would not. How might you glorify and honor this dying father? You honor and glorify this dying father by receiving this great gift. You honor this dying father by sharing this great gift. And and by enjoying this great gift. And by embracing him and saying thank you for this great gift. So I pray that we as a church and myself especially would be a, a people that is known for who and what we are for more so than what we are against. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for you. You are the great giver. Father, from you and through you and to you are all things. Father, what do we have in our room this morning that we have not been given? Father, everything has been given to us by you. The oxygen in our lungs, if we can't think of anything, let's just start with oxygen. Father, you've given us air to breathe. Father, you're holding us together. You've given us music. Father, as we hear the musicians tuning up, and Father, you've given us your word. Father, all things are to be received with thanksgiving. All things are good, and we make it holy by prayer and by your word. And so, Father, we receive you, God. You are our great giver this morning. I pray you would create in us all a sense of deep contentment, of joy. Father, not walking around kind of with our tail between the legs. Don't touch, don't eat, don't whatever. Father, I pray that we'd make all things holy by your word and prayer. And we receive it with thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen.